true story here that whenever um, Pastor Crimmins announced that his, his resignation, uh, and it became apparent to me that I was going to be asked to, be, to stand in the interim and do the preaching while the uh, search committee did their search, I went to Pastor Crimmins um, and I said, hey John, what should I preach? And he said, you know what, why don't you do Luke? It's a really long book. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for the church. It's been a while since we've been in one of the Gospels. And I said, well, you told me to do it. I'm going to do it. And over the past, I guess, you know, a couple of years almost now, that people have asked, hey, how long are we going to be in the book of Luke? And, um, and some folks have said, have said, they've asked that question because they've loved it and they love they love being, you know, in, in the narratives and, and, and studying those encounters with Jesus. And, and there are others who, you know, you know that this is you, you know, this is true, that you miss, you miss the, uh, the, the, the proposition upon proposition, the dense theology of, let's say, a, a letter like Romans. And you long for that. And others of you go, no, not that. I love the narratives and the stories. And, and so we are beginning a new series today that's going to last for eight weeks. So we'll be in and out of this series. It's in Romans uh, 5 through 8. Uh, we'll be in and out of this series through the end of uh, June. And uh, Romans 5 to 8, uh, John Stott, a uh, great theologian, once said that Romans 5 to 8 are without doubt among the greatest and most glorious chapters of the whole New Testament. And many pastors and scholars agree with him, and I mean, I do as well. And if... I think even I may even have new gray hairs by the end of this series because there's so much wrestling, so much wrestling with the deep yet so important and very practical truths in, in, in these chapters. And if you're, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Romans, it has 16 chapters. So the first half of Romans, chapters 1 to 8, can be understood with a following outline. The chapters 1 to 5 can be understood as what God has done for us in the gospel. And then a change happens. In chapters 6 to 8, we see what God will do in us through the gospel. So chapters 1 to 5, what God has done for us in the gospel. And then chapters 6 to 8, what God will do in us through the gospel. So chapters 6 to 8 tell us about how the gospel of grace is incredibly powerful. That it's like dynamite that will, for true followers of Jesus, produce real deep and meaningful changes in our actual character and behavior. As we read in Romans 6, verse 4, that we would walk in newness of life. Walking in newness of life. Doesn't that sound great? Walking in newness of life. Living the life that we, we know God's calling us to live. Living the life that we know the people around us need us to live. Living the life that we want to live. I mean, doesn't that sound great? Newness of life. I mean, who doesn't want to walk in newness of life? You know, whether you're a teenager or whether you're 80. Let me think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. Whether you're a teenager, whether you're 80, who does not want their life to be characterized by those fruit? Their relationships, their conversations, 
their life. If, if you're a parent, who does not want those things to be true about the way you parent your children? Walking in newness of life. I mean, if what husband who is truly a follower of Jesus does not want to love his bride as Christ loved the church, even to the point of laying down his very life for her, selflessly and sacrificially? What wife who is a true follower of Jesus does not want desperately to be able to, to respect and trust and even joyfully support her husband? I mean, who doesn't want to live in newness of life? I think we all do. Romans 6, 7, and 8 talk about this. Now, this is, uh, I mean, we're just beginning a new series. I mean, this is not simple. So I'm not going to give you, you know, just you know, a formula where you can leave today and walk in newness of life. There are probably some churches that will do that, but I don't think it's that simple. So we're going to be wrestling with it. And the reality is that today may even uh, raise more questions in your mind than, as opposed to providing answers. But we're just today, we're just dipping our toes in the water here. We're just beginning to explore it. To look at this transition from Romans 5 to beginning of Romans 6 as we prepare for this journey together over the next few months. And so I want to invite you, if you will, to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one, it looks like this. On the chair near you will be on page 942. So I'm going to read the last few verses of Romans 5 and the first few of Romans 6. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we're going to look at this passage with two headings, the assurance of God's grace and the goal of God's grace. So the assurance of God's grace, the last section of Romans 5. I mean, it's going to describe for us God's abounding grace, God's amazing grace. And we're going to have the assurance of that. But then we're going to dip our toes over, look over into Romans 6 at the goal of God's grace. Primarily, how are true followers of Jesus to live in response to that amazing, abounding grace? And as Romans 6, 4 says, walk in newness of life. You see, whenever Paul was writing uh, this letter, he didn't put in the chapter breaks. So he meant from Romans 5 to go right over into Romans 6. And so if we're going to look at at Romans 6, 7, and 8, I think it's so important that we just touch on what comes before at the end of Romans 5. And so let's, let's do that. 
the assurance of God's grace. And Paul begins with a contrast between Adam and Jesus in verses 18 and 19. 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And already some of you are going, Yep, I miss Luke. But Paul begins, Paul begins with a contrast. And so I have a slide that kind of hopefully summarizes the contrast. We have the contrast of Adam versus Jesus. One trespass versus one act of righteousness. Disobedience, obedience. Condemnation versus justification in life. And so why is Paul contrasting Adam and Jesus? Well, why do you contrast any two things? Because there are similarities and there are differences. So what are the similarities? Well, both Adam and Jesus are federal or covenant heads representing the human race. Our English word for federal comes from the Latin word for covenant or agreement. And God made a covenant with Adam back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. And God's covenant with Adam was that life was promised to him and all of his posterity upon Adam's meeting the condition of perfect obedience. But we all know the story of how Adam failed to perfectly obey God's command in the garden. Therefore, the disobedience of Adam, this is Paul's point, brought condemnation and death to him and to all of us after him. See, we all know that story. And we also know the reality of its consequences today too, right? I mean, all of us know what sin is, even if we never use that word outside of a room like this. We know what sin is like. We all know what sin is like because the consequence of Adam's trespass and disobedience is that we are all born with a sin nature ourselves. And because of that sin nature, we've all followed our first father in the path of disobedience. Disobedience to the God who made us and who takes care of us. And we all know what this is like. We all know that that we hurt the people around us with our thoughts, our words, and our actions over and over again. We even hurt those people who we're supposed to love and care for the most. You see, we're all united to Adam through birth. So when Adam, our federal head, fell in the garden, we fell too. However, don't forget that also there in the garden in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. After Adam's sin and failure as our federal head, God promised that one day another one would come. And that he would be the offspring of the woman, and he would succeed where Adam failed. And he would defeat Satan, sin, and death. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. Because Jesus is the one promised in Genesis 3.15. But both Adam and Jesus are federal heads. Now, how are they different? Well, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So if you look at the, the chart again, that... One trespass versus one act of righteousness. Disobedience versus obedience. Condemnation, sin sin and shame and guilt versus justification. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Being pardoned by the just judge. Being reconciled to him. Being considered righteous. Being born again to not only eternal life, but newness of life now. You see, Jesus perfectly obeyed God in every way every day of his life here on earth. And Jesus refer, and theologians refer to this, 
this everyday obedience of Jesus as his active obedience. And his active obedience qualified Jesus to go to the cross and die the atoning death as our perfect substitute to pay the full penalty for our sins. And theologians refer to Jesus' death on the cross as his one act of passive obedience, which corresponds to Adam's one trespass in the garden. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. There's also another difference between Adam and Jesus. See, there's a difference between being in Adam and being in Jesus. And it's important for us to understand we are all either still in Adam or we're in Jesus. It's one or the other. See, we're in Adam by our birth and our sins, but we're only in Christ by grace through faith. You see, no one earns their way into Christ. See, the righteousness, justification, and life mentioned in verse 18 comes to followers of Jesus by grace through faith alone because of Jesus' obedience and works on our behalf and nothing of our own doing. That's why the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And Paul here, he's describing... Amazing grace. Amazing grace. But what about the law? What about the law? What about holiness? And it seems to me that Paul anticipated this question from his original readers, and so he moves on to describe the relationship between law and grace. Look with me at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, that does not mean that God gave us the law so that we would sin more, as if we needed help. But what Paul means that here the law came to reveal our sin for what it is. The law shows us just how holy and good and perfect God really is, and how far short we fall of measuring up to that perfect standard. See, the law screams at us, That our sins are many, that our sins abound, and that we need a Savior. And the law points us to Jesus as the Savior. You see, Paul's point in verse 20 is that law reveals to us, once again, just how abundant our sin is. But here's the thing, if we come to Jesus by faith, what Paul says is we find a superabundance of grace. See, Paul says where sin is found in abundance we find a superabundance of grace. He doesn't say in the text, in the, in the Greek language here, where we find sin in abundance, we find grace in abundance. It's superabundance. So when you think about it this way, whenever we come to faith in Christ, we come to faith in Christ, it's not as if God has to somehow muster up and scrounge up enough grace to cover our sins. If you think about it in terms of a scale, it's not as if our sins are here and God's grace is here, and God gives us just enough grace to balance this out. What Paul is describing in verse 20 is the scale goes like this. That God's grace far outweighs our sin. That where our sin is many, where it's found to be in abundance, that God's grace is in super abundance. See, the gap between you know, God's holiness and our sinfulness, it's wide and it's deep. And it's wider and it's deeper than many of us want to admit. It's wider and it's deeper than many of us would ever, ever, ever admit. And we know this in our own lives, but Paul's point is that no matter how wide and how deep 
this gap between God's holiness and our sin really is, that God's grace is wider and is deeper still. Or as how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase, he says, but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. God's grace never runs out. It's never depleted. It's a never-ending, superabundant supply for sinners like us who will come to Jesus by faith. So Paul writes in verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death through Adam, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, for all who will come to Jesus by faith, grace trumps sin. It always throws down the trump card. It always does. That grace reigns over sin. As Pastor Timothy Keller put it, at the cross we see the worst that sin can do. As humanity, of which each one of us is a part, crucified the Lord, but at the cross also see that the most that sin can do cannot thwart God's salvation. At the cross, grace overwhelms sin, and life triumphs over death. The first Adam is not the last word for humanity. The second Adam, the perfectly obedient federal head, is. There's no hope at all without Jesus. There is certain hope when, with and in Jesus. Now, whenever I was writing the sermon, and I came to this point, the end of chapter 5, in many ways, I felt like, you know what, yes, this should be the end of the sermon. And I even thought about, okay, is there some way that I can just beef up, beat the first half up and make this a sermon and, and go home early and this would be great. But I kept wrestling with it. And yes, abundant grace, abounding grace, amazing grace. And, and Paul, I mean, he is, he's preaching that here in a way that's, I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, it really says... What you think it says. Grace trumping sin. But once again, in Paul's letter, the end of chapter 5 is not really the end. It goes right over into Romans 6. And so I think it's important for us to move from this assurance of God's grace to really look at the goal of God's grace, to connect the dots here, to at least dip our toes in the water of Romans 6 just for a few minutes this morning. So look with me, if you will, at verse 1. What shall we say then? In response to this amazing grace, this superabundant grace, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now that's a question. See, I think Paul's anticipating, once again, original readers raising objection. Hey, Paul, if you speak about God's grace like this, this amazing, this free, this, this superabundant, uh, <laughs> Won't this message of God's superabundant grace for sinners just encourage us to keep on sinning so that grace will keep covering and keep abounding? Paul, won't this lead to people saying, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness and not permission? Won't this lead to, well, you know, I can live however I want to live and I'll just ask God to forgive me? You know what Paul says in verse 2? He says, by no means. The Greek expression, meganoito. I don't know very many Greek expressions, but this is the most emphatic negative that Paul can possibly use. Some translations say, God forbid. May it never be. Certainly not. Of course not. 
The point is, this is inconceivable. It's unthinkable. It's absurd to even think about that possibility in response to God's amazing, abundant grace that I'll just live however I want to live because God's grace is just that great. So it really doesn't matter. See, this is the rub here. This is the rub. That God's grace, yes, it's that amazing. But the goal is not simply for us just to abuse it. The goal is for us to get to Romans 6, 4, where we're walking in newness of life. You see, James Boyce, a pastor who wrote a great commentary on this section of Romans, uh, says this, The goal of grace is to destroy and vanquish sin and not encourage or promote it. That salvation is more than knowledge of this grace. It is a new life. It's a new life. It's a new life that we all get excited about. It's a new life that we would all love to have. So how do we get that? How do we get to that new life? How do we get to Romans 6, 4? Once again, I mean, this is a huge topic. We're only going to begin to even really scratch the surface at the end of this sermon series. And so today we're just barely, you know, barely looking at it, barely just peeking over. But let's try to do this. Look at verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That phrase, this idea of our having died to sin, shows up several times in Romans 6. And James Boyce says, to understand this statement is to understand how to live a holy life. He says that if you want to know how you get to Romans 6, 4, walking in newness of life, you've got to understand Romans 6, 2. You've got to understand what this phrase means. So let's try to understand it. First, there's an emphatic use of the word we. You see, once again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I know a little bit. One of the first things you learn in Greek is that the pronoun subjects of verbs are included in the Greek verbal endings. So it's not necessary to have a separate pronoun. Unless, of course, you want to emphasize that pronoun. And that's what Paul's doing. He's stressing we. So who is we? We are the people who are no longer in Adam, but who are now in Jesus by grace through faith alone. That's the we. He's stressing that here. We who are now in Christ. What about this we? Well, we've died. Now, what does that mean? And we've really got to think about this. We have got to think hard about what this word died means, what this verb means. You've got to. Because I will tell you right now, you'll, you'll see it. You'll see it very, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this because there are so many rabbit trails you can go down. There are so many misinterpretations of this. And some of them go too far and they're harmful. And they're legalistic, and then some of them don't go far enough, and they're just unhelpful. And, they want, and they're impractical, and they make no difference at all. And so what does he mean that we died? Well, the tense of that verb died is the aorist tense. Single past action, taken place in the past, completed in the past. Now that seems simple enough, but let's really make sure we understand it. Past action, already happened, already completed. It doesn't mean future tense, we shall die to sin. It doesn't mean or say, 
present tense, we are dying to sin. It doesn't mean or say past imperfect tense, we have died and are continuing to die to sin. It says that we have died to sin. It's already happened in the past, simple action, completed, finished, done. Does that make sense? I'm trying to beat the dead horse here so we understand this because everything else depends upon this. We have to understand this. You see, it doesn't mean that we no longer want to sin. See, Romans 7 makes that clear, that the Apostle Paul describes for us, and we'll get there in a few weeks, his own struggle with sin. How there are things that he does not want to do, but he finds himself doing. How there are things that he wants to do, but he can't do them. And we know from our own experience, right? That even if we've been a Christian for a long time, it's not that we do not find sin tempting. It doesn't mean that we should die to sin. Now, it's right for a pastor to say, hey, don't sin. You should stop sinning. So stop sinning. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, speaking about anything that we are called to do. He's speaking about something that's happened to us. It doesn't mean that we're slowly dying to sin day by day. Now, it's true that, that Christians will grow in holiness. But once again, the tense is wrong. This is not what we are doing or will do, but what has already happened. It doesn't mean that we got serious and we renounced sin and we committed, we committed to, to following Jesus and living a holy life. Just kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, white-knuckle our way to being better. The emphasis here is not on what we did, on what happened to us. And it doesn't mean that we've died to sin's guilt and now we're pardoned in Jesus, although that's true. But Paul was talking about that in Romans 5. Now he's moved on from that, and he's talking about how we live in response to it. So, what does died to sin mean? Why, why is this the key to living a new life? Well, look with me at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, the verse uses baptized twice. But I don't think that Paul is referring primarily to water baptism. Our minds go there, but I don't think that's what Paul means here. Not... not not primarily. See, there are other places, and I'll mention two of them, where Paul uses the word baptize, and he has no, he does not mean water baptism. For example, we have 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is describing the original Exodus and the Israelites passing through the, the parted waters of the Red Sea as they follow Moses to the Promised Land. And look, 1 Corinthians 10.1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they were baptized into Moses. See, now I would say this can't be referring to water baptism, because if you remember the story, who got wet? The Egyptians, they were immersed in the water and they drowned. But the Israelites, not even their feet was wet. They walked across on dry land. So what does he mean? They were baptized into Moses. I think that Paul's talking about a, a once-for-all, permanent transfer from an old life to a new life. See, think about it. When the Israelites were still in Egypt, before they had crossed, passed through this part of the waters of the Red Sea... They could have renounced Moses' leadership. They could have renounced their God and turned back to Egypt, reaffirmed their commitment to Pharaoh, and started making bricks again. 
But once they passed through the parted waters of the Red Sea, and then the, the sea closed back on the Egyptians, the way back was closed to them. There was no going back. There was no turning back. That it was done. It was permanent. They were now all in. They were now all in. That old life was gone, lost to them, dead to them. The only way, the only way to go now is forward. No point in looking back. No point in thinking about the past. Keep that in your mind. In Galatians 3.27, we see Paul also say, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, put on means dressed or clothed in Christ. And once again, I don't think this verse is primarily talking about water baptism, but rather being identified with Christ, union with Christ, identified with Christ, putting him on like a uniform, if you will. I mean, like if you watched the basketball games last night and you, and you see a player playing and he's wearing his uniform, he's identified with that university. Or a soldier wearing his uniform is identified with his country. I think that Paul's saying that through our faith in Christ, we're united with Jesus in such a way that our old uniform, our old life, it's gone. And Jesus gives us a new one. But not just a new one, he gives us his. See, I think this is what Paul says is the key to living a new life in Christ. That we've all been baptized into Christ in the sense that we are united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So just like a set of Russian nesting dolls, you know, little dolls, dolls inside of dolls inside of dolls, that, that, that we, are, we are in Christ, clothed in Christ, and yet Christ is also in us, in the Holy Spirit, that we are united to Christ. And we died to our old life, our old self, when Christ transferred us to the new one in Him. And this old life of sin no longer has domineering power over us. See, this is the key. This is like the the old hymn says, Be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. That Paul in Romans 5 talks about, he goes on and on about how Christ in the gospel frees us from sin's power, from penalty and its guilt. And now in Romans 6, he's saying it's possible for, for, for the Christian, you are freed from sin's domineering power, enslaving power. And he'll go on and talk more and more about this as we move through Romans 6. But Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We were buried. The old us has been buried. If you're truly in Christ, the old you has been buried. You know what that means? It's not just dead. It's gone. It's removed. It's removed from this world. Never to be seen ever again, never to be heard from ever again. It's, it's final. Just like we read in the affirmation of faith with the Heidelberg Catechism, question 43, through Christ's death, our old selves are crucified, put to death, and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may dedicate ourselves as an offering of gratitude to him. And listen to this description of this offering of gratitude. In Romans 6, 4, this newness of life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. (laughs) You see, in a very real sense, if you're truly in Christ, then we are resurrected people. 
And so the question really is, how can someone who's been united to Jesus by faith, forgiven of all their sins, credited with Jesus' own righteousness, someone who died to their old life of sin, they've been buried, uh, so it's final, then raised to new life in Jesus, with the Holy Spirit living within them, continue to live the same old way? How can we continue to live the same old life? And you see, I think truth be told, for the follower of Jesus... It simply won't work. It's impossible. You know, just like it is for an adult who wants to go back and be a child. Now, some of us try. Some of us try, but it really doesn't work. And a true Christian may return to their sin in the same old way. I mean, because we can certainly still sin. And we can certainly still make a big mess of our lives but it's not going to be the same. See, for the true follower of Jesus, we return to our old life, we're not going to be able to enjoy it the same way as before. We can't even pretend that we enjoy it the same way as before. And many of us know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not the same. We keep doing it, we hate it. It's not satisfying it's not fulfilling. It's, it's not making things any better. And of course not, because sin never takes you where you want to go. Never makes things better. You can't, a true follower of Jesus can't enjoy it the way you used to. And thank God. <laughs> thank God that 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. The old is passed away, is dead, buried. Behold, the new has come. See, the key to walking in newness of life is to believe and trust that this is true. Regardless of your emotions, it doesn't matter how you feel now. If you're in Christ, then you're new. It doesn't matter about your experiences. You may look at your life and think, this seems like, this looks like the same old life. But if you're in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. And you've got to understand that if you're ever going to live into who you really are. You've got to understand that is dead. It's buried. James Boyce puts it this way. The bottom line of this discussion has been that the key to a holy life is not our experiences or emotions. However meaningful or intense these may be, but rather our knowledge of what has happened to us. The most important and basic reason for going forward in the newness of Christian life is that we cannot go back. Christ's death only pays for our sins and assures, assures us of eternal life. It also means that our old sinful natures have been put to death in this life. And so progressive sanctification or walking in newness of life is built upon this truth. So let me say it again, that we have died with Christ been buried with him, raised with him. And this doesn't mean that the fight for holiness is over. It means that it can now begin. That it can now begin. Like I said, we've only, I mean, this is not even really scratching the surface of what this series is going to be like. But I think we need it. And I'm excited to be transformed uh, by this incredible grace as we move through it. So please join me in prayer. Father, thank you.
Thank you that we have the assurance of your amazing, abounding grace. And thank you, Father, that, that we know that this amazing, abounding grace also has the goal of vanquishing and defeating sin in our lives. So, Father, please, help us to make sense of this. Help those of us who are true followers of Jesus to embrace this identity that we have, our old self has died, it's been buried, and we have been raised to newness of life. And help us to live out this identity that really is who we are now in Jesus. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.